The Future by Stefan Molyneux, Chapter 14. My friend Hamish was a predatory man, cold-hearted, even by my standards. I was able to freeze my heart in the pursuit of power, or rather, freeze one half of my heart, the half that felt what others feel, and use that excess heat to fuel the other half that burned to dominate and control. Hamish had had it rough, no doubt. His father went slowly mad in a grating, whining, insistent, follow-you-around-the-house-nagging kind of way. Crazy parents who go random are one thing. Crazy parents who get obsessive and invasive are quite another. His dad was a low-rent manager in some boring industrial concern, the kind of guy who wears a polyester short-sleeved shirt with armpit stains and an empty pocket protector. He was never much of anything. I met him when he was still pretty functional, and he was terrifying in his bland, predictable, forgettable face-in-a-crowd kind of way. I mean, we all end up being forgotten in one way or another. At least all of our secret thoughts vanish and scatter like morning dew, unless someone writes them down, of course. Which is why I want to have power. If you have power, who cares about being forgotten? You have extracted everything possible out of life already. But Hamish's dad was a blank wall, a polystyrene construct of a pretend human being. He had standard statements and standard jokes and standard opinions, a mirage of identity hovering over a deep chasm of nothing. He was too frightened to live, so he just paraded and pretended and regurgitated. And life has a way of erasing those who erase themselves. After a while, his dad just started slowly going around the bend. It wasn't exaggerated to begin with, although it quickly progressed to that. He would forget a few things, be unaccountably late or absent, but soon he would obsessively begin to peck at something, at someone in the house, his wife, their cats, or Hamish. I was there one night when Hamish's dad took objection to something Hamish was wearing and barred his exit from the house until he promised to change his belt Everyone knows how it goes in the teenage years. You comply and comply, and then in a moment you stop complying, and you are willing to fight to the virtual death rather than submit. Any parent with half a brain plans for this inevitable rebellion, but this all happened at the worst possible time. Hamish was screaming at his dad. His dad was screaming back. His mother was hiding upstairs. And it was also useless, so pointless. Ah, You wouldn't believe how many people bleed off their essential energies on stupid fights of no importance. Everyone thinks that these fights have some hidden and significant meaning, but it's just not true. People battle themselves into atoms over a lipstick color, the, the length of a skirt, who drank the last milk, who forgot to refill the car... Combat energies that should be reserved for the end times, for Ragnarok or resurrection, are squandered on stupid nothings. And people end up hating each other over whether a son is wearing the right belt or one that is a little too worn. I remember Hamish screaming with rage at his father that he hated the crazy old man and his father with stupid avoidance stubbornness, insisting that Hamish change his belt, that no self-respecting man would leave the house wearing a worn-out belt. Of course, thinking about it now, the belt was the dad's mind, worn to a thread, ready to snap. And that reminds me how often people sink their brittle yellow mental fangs into an analogy that represents themselves but genuinely believe that they are fighting something external, which is why the fight never ends. (sighs) Hamish was my 
poor relation. His mother had come into money from some distant relative, and he was heaved up from the lower classes into our exclusive school. <laughs> I guess he was the school's poor relation as well. Ah, he knew he didn't fit in. And like most families that came into sudden money, he used it to detach himself from his former poverty-stricken strictness. Now, people who grow up poor can't really afford to screw around unless they want to sink into the general quicksand of the welfare state. And so he was disciplined as hell when he was younger, by all reports. But when his family got money, his father went crazy, his mother got sick, and he squandered his money like a formerly fat girl squanders her virginity. (laughs) He bought computers so powerful that they caused the lights to dim when he turned them on. He bought a Jeep, invested in random startups, got taken for everything, almost, and was about to sink back down into the lower classes, his trajectory like a cannon shot high in the air, returning from whence it came, when his mother died, and he inherited more money from her, from her death, her insurance. Ah, Getting money dissolves the poor. Losing money dissolves the rich. It's better for most people to just stay where they are, where they started, and not get notions above their station, as the old British saying went. Poor people who get money are like accidental immigrants to a wildly foreign culture that they can never understand. Their money pushes away everyone they grew up with, all their relations, everyone they know, but it doesn't bring them any closer to people who've learned how to live with their money for at least a couple of generations. So they end up adrift, abandoned, homeless, without a tribe. Their poor relations claw at them both trying to bring themselves up and bring them down. But their isolation and desperation keep all the members of the old money club at a distance. So what's the point of getting to know someone who recently came into money when odds are they will just end up flailing and falling back into their poverty? But I liked Hamish. He was crazy talented. He could play guitar, sing well. He wrote music. He wrote bitter short stories, acted in plays, learned the arcane and ancient art of darkroom photography. He was not very attractive. He had a kind of low-rent elfin look with his half-pajama shirt, skinny jeans, and cobbler's shoes. (laughs) Knowing his limitations, he decided to go for the too-cynical-to-breathe shtick. People who come into money also think that they are coming into attractiveness. But the alpha females of the old money club are well aware of how dissolving new money can be. Socially, we all like to wait for at least a couple of years, a couple of generations sometimes, just to see if the money sticks around or if the idiots just blow it and vanish. Are they a stable boat or a leaping whale? I didn't think that Hamish would sink back down, at least not all the way. He had too great a horror of poverty to end up tumbling down to the bottom of the stairs. But accidental good fortune is the greatest spur of vanity in the human heart. And because he had money, he also thought he had acumen, intelligence, and wisdom. So he was pathetically easy to exploit. He tried dipping down to the middle classes to show off his money and scavenge among the materially desperate daughters of the endlessly striving. However, his corrosive cynicism put off the fathers who worked to squelch any budding romances. Hamish knew, deep down, that he would need to dip even further to the daughters of the single mother brigade who would leap at his money like suicidal fish into a bloody boat. But... That was too far down for his pride. So he flirted and skirted around the edges of our alpha females, our precious egg maidens, who were polite and distant and utterly untempted. Jane was another matter, but she was a lock to his key, so to speak. His father had earned his money, but somewhat by accident by being an early adopter of Bitcoin. He had foresight, and a good knowledge of economics, but he didn't gather his resources by sweating to provide value in the free market, so his new wealth affected him in a way pretty similar to inheritance. 
Jane's father considered himself superior to the masses, <laughs> even superior to our old money club, but would never admit it, and so paraded around with false humility that was blindingly obvious in its hypocrisy. Daniel viewed everyone as irrational, as wayward projects to be saved by charts and graphs, and so was unwilling to learn from anyone. People comfortable with money hate being lectured to about economics. People comfortable with power hate being lectured to about morality. And so Daniel and his family ended up fairly isolated. They were all pretty athletic, and so the old-world hyper-competitiveness of the old money club was willing to overlook his false humility haughtiness because he and his wife were good at tennis. They were invited, they were chatted with, but they never got anywhere close to the inner sanctums where the real relationships, the real value and values were informed and reinforced. I was there at the dinner party where Hamish first met Jane. <laughs> he refused to stare at her, which was a great and obvious mistake. She was so worthy of being stared at, particularly at first meeting, that to look away was a sign of the greatest possible interest the older generation was talking about the crisis in mental health care. Daniel was insisting that the turning out of mental patients into the street was a socialist plot to undermine society. He had some good arguments and some reasonable data, but because he had spent all his energy researching rather than learning how to be pleasant, he just drove people away from his position. I watched Hamish's cheeks get redder and redder until he said, gesturing with a hunk of bread, I don't know where to put crazy people, but they're not amusing at all to have around the house. Jane was always fascinated by deep emotional issues masquerading as abstract arguments. She leaned forward, tucking a strand of hair behind her ear. You sound like you have some personal experience. Court. Hamish froze. He could not minimize his experiences. Too many of us knew about his family. Well, he said, you do get to learn a lot about attention to detail when you live with a manic obsessive. I can't leave home with a hair out of place. To understand why this was funny, you had to know that Hamish's hair was a bushy tangle of Scottish steel wool. Jane frowned. Is that something to joke about? Hamish gestured airily and then, rather insultingly, took a bite from his dinner roll and spoke through the fragments. What are you going to do? You laugh or you cry? Oh, but you must cry about it sometimes. She turned to the table as a whole. You all know about this? Is it his father? Is it your father? His eyes narrowed. Why would you assume it was my father? She pondered for a moment. Some mental issues seem to be more masculine. What is going on in your home? Hamish looked at me helplessly, insisting with his eyes that I interrupt this question. <laughs> we all hid tiny smiles, not wanting to stall the coming entertainment. Oh, I'm sure I don't want to bore everyone here with my little troubles, shrugged Hamish. Jane compressed her lips. Is it really a bother, though? We talk a lot about things that don't mean a lot. No, I think you brought this up for a reason. Jane's father laughed. Oh, no, we've hit a gusher. Break out the couch. She shot him a look of annoyance, but obviously chose to confine her reaction. She turned back to Hamish. If you don't want to talk about it, you don't have to, of course. He had the lower-class sting of reaction. We all felt it, the perceived humiliation of being given permission. God, it was entertaining. I don't mind talking about it, said Hamish loudly. Every family has their... He gestured around the table. I'm sure that there are more than a few batty aunts and uncles floating around the belfries of this gathering... It's, it's just something we deal with. The mind is a funny thing, and sometimes the joke is on, on us. His speech was pressured. <laughs> we struggled not to laugh. Jane leaned forward. I almost expected her to put her hand on his forearm. What has been going on? That's a big topic, I'm afraid. P perhaps another time. Jane's eyes widened slightly. Oh, Hamish, isn't it? Hamish! We talk a lot here about all these abstract issues, but when something tangible comes up in our midst, I think it's more interesting to talk about that, don't you? Her positive attitude was annoyingly contagious. I could see Hamish struggling not to soften. My friend to my right, 
dug his elbow into my side. Jane's father said, Your father is going through some issues, right? He's going mad. There was an awkward silence, and I mentally applauded Hamish for regaining his status with the simple statement of fact. Jane said, Mad? How? Hamish shrugged. Does it matter? I think it does. It does to me, at least. Her voice was gentle like lazy honey. Hamish took a deep breath. Everyone stared at him. It was so vivid. He laughed, a little shakily. <laughs> well, if you want to know, he's, he's becoming kind of vague and abstracted, but at the same time, he's focusing on these tiny details and obsessing over them, and you can't move anywhere or lift a finger without satisfying these endless train tracks in his brain. This morning, there couldn't be a crumb on the dishes before they went in the dishwasher. Yesterday, we had to check all of the carpets for loose threads. Last week, all the pans had to be taken from the closet and pressed perfectly. And you can fight this. And sometimes I do, because I don't want to go crazy. But other times, it's easier to just let it happen or make it happen so that he gets some ease, I guess. Jane considered his words. And where is your mother in all of this? She glanced around the table, suddenly embarrassed. I don't want to bore everyone. Not that you're boring, Hamish, but this might be more of a private conversation. My mother smiled and gestured for her to continue. Hamish took a slow breath. My mother is not well either, but it's, it's physical, not mental. Oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. What is it? Cancer. There was a silence at the table, particularly for the older generation. The demon word they most feared had been uttered and all appetite vanished. That is terrible, terrible. Tell me, are you getting the support that you need? Hamish shook his head slightly. I'm not... I'm, I'm not sure what you mean. Well, do you have nurses and, and, and aides and, and I don't know what else? Do, do you have family, extended family? Do they help? Hamish paused. Extended family? Don't have much to do with us. No more explanation was needed. New money was an isolating virus we all understood. Jane turned to her father. Dad, we've... You must know something that can help in this kind of situation. He cleared his throat awkwardly. <clears throat> I'm happy to help, but it really should be coming from Hamish, if you don't mind me saying so. Hamish... Do you need any help? I'm sorry to be asking. We don't really know each other, but <laughs> well, I guess we do now. The way he said it brought slight laughter to the table. Hamish worked his jaw from side to side as if masticating his potential words. They're terrible with money. No idea how you could help. Dear God, that was such a wonderfully cynical statement. So delightfully nihilistic, that mental applause ran through the minds of all the young men present. I could see it flickering through their eyes like giggling ghosts. Jane's eyes widened as she understood the import of the statement. She curled her lip in slight disgust, and then, almost too small to see, a slight, tiny pout, which I knew was her sign of interest. My father clapped Hamish on the back and said, With that attitude, I'm sure that your money will be here to stay. There was general laughter, and topics moved on. Hamish ate in silence, but Jane kept glancing at him, and I could see her feminine calculation, her stalled maternal instincts straining to encircle him and heal his wounds. Oh, trashy... Needy men always want to encourage women to postpone motherhood so that women will end up mothering them. Jane was a natural-born mother, but she swallowed whole, as just about everyone did, I don't blame her, the propaganda about going to college and having a career and having your own money and not trusting men and waiting and dating and freezing your eggs, standard high IQ depopulation stuff, which can significantly reduce or even eliminate procreation among those most challenging to rule. I'd heard she was the kind of kid who constantly scanned her environment for wounded birds and would be disappointed if they flew away from her reaching, healing hands. She had a deep-seated hunger 
to make broken things whole. And so she was drawn to Hamish in a classically Freudian manner. She wanted to heal him. He wanted to sleep with her. But as we all know, men will not change whatever brings female attention to them. He knew deep down that she was interested in him because he was broken, so he had no intention of fixing himself. A car that likes the driver will never steer itself. But letting a woman mother you is endlessly frustrating because unless she is extremely disturbed, the mothering kills any sexual attraction. Jane was not disturbed, just untutored. Her parents were sunny optimists who believed that daylight always kept vampires at bay. Hamish drew Jane into his circle of cynical friends. Really, military companions in the sharpshooting of any cultural lights in the vicinity. <laughs> they competed wildly in a scintillating race-to-the-bottom black comedy fest where any slight hesitation in the free fall to dissolving infinity was marked as bourgeois fastidiousness. There are birds who always prefer their eggs bigger, even to the point of absurdity. Jane was one of those. Confronted with the internal rending cynicism of an entire tribe, she was drawn to try and mother them all. They played with her like a fish on a line, promising reform and optimism and goodwill, but then would decay into blindingly obvious self-destructive behaviors, which drew her more into the quagmire of their emptiness. They constantly belittled society, but never turned their withering gazes on themselves. They judged and exoriated and insulted endlessly and turned any criticism of themselves into psychological weakness on the part of their accusers. Why are you so fascinated by me? They would demand of any interrogators. I bother you because of you, not because of me. In this way, they drove everyone away who might have substantially improved them. Their cynicism was a near-biological defense mechanism, an immunity response designed to keep the cancer killers of reason and evidence at a foggy distance. I don't know what kind of psychological death spiral kept Jane in their decaying orbit, but I do know that she proved unable to break free. You can't criticize drug use if you've never even tried, they said. If you want to rescue people, there's no better time to do it than two o'clock in the morning. Kick off your welded-on goody-two-shoes for once and just learn how to relax. And so she dipped into their dead world. Like a bad swimmer might dive deep to rescue a pet. Never to float again. At least for a while. Chapter 15 I was at the party. The party that killed her. And it was, until then, a rollicking good time. Oh, beauty and wealth often go hand in hand, because men with money marry women with looks, and those looks pass on to their children. Pretty people, pretty houses, pretty cars. That the world wants to gorge itself to death on such ephemeral candy floss is not my invention, but I would be damned if I would not exploit it to the end. We had a DJ, a jello pool, professional dancers, inflatables in the swimming pool, and all the booze and weed that young livers and lungs could handle. New arrivals were told that the upstairs were off-limits, which kept the bedrooms free for those in the know. There was a lot of fresh meat in attendance, people who had swallowed the nonsense that parties were just great fun, the stuff of great Gatsby memories where social status was cemented, the grappling hooks of giggling subjugation could be fired up to raise yourself to a higher level, that all the drinks and lights and shaking asses were a social oasis well worth betraying your parents, your conscience, your soul, and your God to drink deep from. <laughs> we knew better. We had created this mirage of temptation 
The purpose of the party was to undo innocence and nothing else. It has always struck me as strange that people know for a simple fact that the devil is attractive, but still chase these pretty delusions off a cliff. Beauty is a gilded mousetrap that clamps down on your future. (laughs) Thankfully, priests no longer warn the young of this, so they follow their senses straight out of Eden. Ah, the night was beautiful. The scent of young eagerness, intoxicating. One could almost hear the panting desire of the newcomers to trade all their tomorrows for one. What? What did they want to trade everything for? (laughs) We knew what we were after. I never had a clue what they really wanted. Perhaps a commercial they could climb into and live in forever, becoming as flat as the screen. (laughs) Maybe everyone spent so many years watching people have fun that they imagined that fun was being watched, so they made fools of themselves to gain attention. But clowns are the lowest form of comedy, (laughs) except life itself. I never watched the video that was shot in the upstairs bedroom. But I heard that someone convinced Jane to dance on a table to let loose for once. It was amazing how these simple phrases could command people like remote control. It was always with the implicit promise that if she did let loose, then her chiding words of constant instruction would be taken more seriously. Hoping to gain credibility, perhaps, and drunk, perhaps, or the victim of a spike. She did dance on the table to some foul, low-rent song, and the sharks knew they had her. They were live-streaming to all the envious, excluded eyes, and whoever jostled her made sure to have Jane between him and the camera. Oh, the inevitable slow-motion video setting was activated, so everyone saw an excruciating and exquisite detail. Jane toppling from her disco perch, having people pretend to catch her, and pulling her top and her bra from her chest. Because of the slow motion, it took a few seconds for her face to change from pleasure to shock to horror. And before that change... She looked as if she were enjoying being topless. Naturally, those were the stills that made the rounds. Once you got in deep with the sharks, there was no easy or pleasant or safe extraction. Either one of them slept with you and shared his conquest, or if you refused, same. Broken people will... Always blame the kindness of strangers for failing to help them. A complete absence of self-responsibility always gets its revenge. As a man, I'm not entirely sure of the existential horror of public nudity, but for women, and in particular for Jane, it is a nightmare without end. As a kid... I remember one of my mother's friends rolling her eyes at her husband's habit of stretching in his underwear in front of the window while she imitated herself kneeling down and half-crawling past the same window after her shower. Delightfully incomprehensible, I thought at the time, as I have thought many times since. Jane was untutored, unprepared for such inevitable exploitation. Parties are for the destruction of innocence, and boy, did that one achieve its goal. Her father should have told her that humiliation is a relationship, not an absolute. Refuse to be humiliated, stand tall, and own whatever you did, and the bullies, who are bullies because they're paranoid about weakness, drop you and move on to easier targets. You can gain status by being attacked. Humiliation can transform into strength and power. But she could not make the leap, so she took the step. Jane stayed home from school. Oh, it was a terrible mistake. I can't believe her father let that happen. 
going the creepy homeschool option is an open invitation to escalation. She showed fear, major error. She should have shown a combination of good humor and anger. She should have shared the memes and strode into school wearing a two-egg halter top. She should have slapped whoever she knew was in that party room. She could have ridden this wave to the very top. Instead, she stepped off a stepladder into nothing at all. And it always struck me as strangely predictable. And does now in this tiny room trapped on a hard bed like a soft baby that Jane killed herself in her parents' house, not in the house of the party. I can't imagine what her parents said to her, but I imagine they blamed her for her indiscretion, not themselves for letting her slide into the jaws of the sharks. Probably her father dangled her over the predators in the hopes of gaining access to power using her as a mouthpiece for his idiotic theories of abstract virtue. He had something to feel guilty for and dumped all that guilt on her and broke her into nothing. (laughs) It took three days for Jesus to come back to life. And it took three days for Jane to take her stairway to heaven. A no number. I was playing a sword-wielding VR game when my phone lit up outside my fake universe, announcing a call from an unknown number. I was in hot competition with an unknown online foe, and I didn't care to lose because of a probable telemarketer, so I played on, swiping at the blocks like a mad conductor. Afterwards, I got a call from Hamish, and we studiously avoided the topic of Jane, because we didn't want to acknowledge that she might conceivably be in our thoughts. Something odd was going on, though, because he insisted that we plan to go hunting for Pokemons, something we had not done for years. It was the kind of regression that should have warned me of something. Hang on, he said as I was mildly protesting the hassle of reinstalling Pokemon Go. Ah, never mind, unknown caller. I felt an odd shiver then, like a goose walking on my grave, as my great-aunt used to say. A notification popped up that I had a voicemail message, and my hand literally felt frozen to my phone, as if I could will it to hold down the one key to get the message, but it would simply refuse to obey. I felt a rise of nausea and a hatred and impatience for every day I was living, all the stupid and wasteful moments of my waking breaths, and I suddenly wanted to be in Thailand, in a a fishing village, pulling at simple protein, far from technology and floating colored blocks and my family and and, and my cell phone. Hamish said, I got a message, could be an old one, could be important, I'll hit you back. Falling in slow motion fear, I dialed into my voicemail. It was Jane. Something in her voice commanded my finger. The way she said her name, the the distant, tinny, disembodied voice, as if she had been cast back in time to a 1950s beach radio abandoned in the midnight sand. My forefinger jabbed the seven button, deleting the message forever. The phrase, pity party, floated through my mind. My mother would say that whenever one of her friends complained, and I really hated the words. I sat on the couch, staring at my phone, both wanting and not wanting Hamish to call back to tell me whatever Jane had said that my finger would never let me hear. I would like to say that the thought of raising the alarm did not cross my mind, and I did tell myself that for many years. But now, on this bed, in this white room, the inside of an empty die. There's no point continuing the dishonesty. I could have called Jane's father, her mother, 911. I could have called Jane back. I could have texted Hamish, and we could have raced over. I could have called my own father for advice, but I quailed at even the hint of the notion that I had a problem I could not handle. No, no. 
I sat there like a lump on a log. <sighs> Another phrase of my mother's that I hated. As the room grew dark, my heart grew cold. And a particular set of shining train tracks narrowed ahead of me, radiating from my feet forward on the basis of my indecision and... and what? Why did I not act? I don't know if this was a fork in the road. Everyone thinks that these forks go left and right, which is a total lie. The forks go up and down, down to the depths I inhabit in whatever state I am in now. What did I want from wanting nothing? It was truly nothing that you wanted. My throat constricts. The voice is back. What the hell does that mean? It's just another way of rephrasing, rephrasing what I just said. But not quite, not quite. The thought arises in me that I wanted Jane to, not to die necessarily, but fail in some monstrous fashion so that I would not have to choose what? Choose what? <sighs> Why? Whatever led me to where I am. I could have helped someone in instead of staring at a darkening wall a dead lump in my throat. <sighs> I should cry. I'm human enough to know that I should cry. But apparently I only shed tears in self-pity. If I had called back, she just would have sucked me into her drama and raged against me and tried to pull me close to staunch her wounds. And I would have had a full-time job trying to prop up a hysteric who lost her life because she lost her top. People that fragile, something in life will undo them. Better sooner than later. Saves... No, that was too far. Even for me. No one deserved... deserves. If I had called her back, we would have been bound together forever, like a balancing act over a bottomless grave. She would have... She would have gained power over me, which I cannot abide, I cannot bear... I would have been mocked by my friends. How's the patient today? I can't make the world a better place, and I can't hit the gas and prepare an unprepared soul for the ravages of this planet. And I sat in the dark, and I jumped up when my parents came home and pretended to have been napping because I couldn't turn the light on quick enough to cover my inaction. And I went through dinner, and I watched a movie... I listened to my dad complain about politics, casting terrified glances at my phone, waiting for the inevitable blow-up. And nothing was noticed. Nothing at all. No curious gaze was cast in my direction. No sudden questions about where my mind was. No queries as to what might be troubling me. And I realized that night... That that is why I did not call Jane back. My family only recognized me as someone hiding everything. An absurd thought ripped into my mind. If I had called Jane back, my family would not have recognized me and would have shot me as an intruder. Now, the funeral was a funny thing. You always think of caskets going into the mud on rainy, cloudy days with bubbling violin sounds half-drowning in the drizzle. Everyone moves slowly. Women stagger. Grim-faced men help them along. Children are yelled at for playing tag through the wet trees. A fresh tombstone rises like a single incisor against the mossy molars of old deaths. A gathering around a single hole reminds everyone that no one is visiting the other bodies. And everyone feels the sudden tiny shock of mortality 
knowing that one day they too will go into the ground and stare at black velvet until the worms eat their eyes. And everyone makes sudden tiny resolutions about being better, doing better, which everyone forgets by the time the reception is over. Like everyone pretends to diet until there are free cookies at the buffet. The sudden yearning to be better is transformed into a greedy hunger for more and more and more, as if we can stuff that grave with money and power and status and sex so there is no room for us and we can live forever. Jane's funeral was a consciously tragic affair. An acoustic version of her favorite song, Scar Tissue, was played and sung by a friend of hers who clearly relished the chance to show off her talents. She knew she was being filmed for social media. A little stomach-turning, but eh, what can you do? People are people. And all the people she knew, (laughs) all the people she dominated, through no fault of her own, she was not responsible for being born beautiful and smart, And all the people she tried to help, they all came and stood in random circles and clumps and cried at her passing and were moved by their own crying because that meant they were sensitive, trademark, and good, trademark. And the sun shone down blindingly. And people refused to wear their sunglasses so that other people could see their red eyes and occasional tears. The only rain that entire day was self-pity. And nature did not care one bit that a glorious creation of hers had gone to ground. The birds flew, the trees rustled, clouds could not be bothered to attend. I saw a worm in the grass, sunning itself, enjoying the heat before diving into the wet dark for its new meal. And I suddenly found myself going through the mental exercise of imagining what she would be called on an underground menu. A Jane Witch. A French restaurant would call her Jean Pain for bread. Going to another language was lame, but I couldn't think of any champagne Jane, although her pain was no sham. (laughs) Brain drain Jane. Perhaps they removed her brain before she was put in the silk box vagina. Subdomain Jane, below she will rule the dirt with cracking beauty. And now, mundane Jane, just a body. A woman can fall from a great height into a lake, then she turns to stone and ceases to be, but the ripples of her impact never stop. Hamish turned to me and pointed at a headstone of Jesus kneeling and praying and said, I'm not sure why stone Jesus is diving for a volleyball. I felt some nausea in that moment, as if these words were a sentence passed upon me, upon all of us. I felt a revulsion, a certainty that there would be no escape from this giggling narcoleptic compulsion to make jokes at every expense that none of us would ever feel anything of importance. That the singer was not thinking about Jane, but hoping she sounded good on YouTube. That everyone who cried was weeping to be seen, to be important. That we were all precious and self-conscious and stuffing our hollowness with the empty eyes of empty people. And there was no one to talk to, nothing to hear, nothing to say that meant anything other than manipulation and that we could not be honest because we were all so terrified of each other, of of disapproval, of the simple fact that all our relationships hung by a skinny thread of conformity. We were invited up to give speeches, and one by one we all went, removing our hats to show off our hair, like an audition to be a human being. The speeches were all the same, just rearranged. My heart is broken. I loved her, although I didn't know her as well as I wanted to. She was an inspiration, so helpful. Here's a detail about someone she helped that tells you all you need to know about her. I had no idea she was suffering this much. My deepest sympathies to her parents. She loved animals. She made everyone laugh. She was the life of every... Well, no one wanted to mention the word party, so they said 
social gathering. I'm not overly religious, but I feel sure we will meet again. This song came on the radio that reminded me of her, and I cried and cried. I will always regret not doing more. She's in a more peaceful place. Blah, blah, blah. And no one could say the truth. (laughs) That would have been impossible. You would have been ostracized into interstellar space if a simple syllable of honesty had passed your lying lips. No one could say, I secretly loved her downfall. (laughs) I shared those pictures on self-shredding social media. I thought it was hilarious, like a nun at a strip club. I looked away when I saw her. I didn't call to see how she was doing. I laughed with everyone else. I drove her with scalding whips of scorn right off the cliff. I bought the rope and tied it for her and helped her sobbing up the ladder and kicked it away. (laughs) I love the drama. I love the power I now hold over life and death. I will be feared. I will be obeyed. And I will be a slave to the conformity that only sometimes refrains from murder. But I don't mind because I have no idea how to live. So conformity is as good a system as any. And breaking from the crowd is now so dangerous that conformity is survival. I don't have to be good. I just have to want to live, which I don't even have to earn. It's built in. So the great gifts Jane gave me are purpose and meaning. My purpose is to stay alive. My meaning is to destroy those who deviate. Jane did not die in vain. She gave me, all of us, an inescapable map for the rest of our unnatural lives. (laughs) nothing gets you to lie like death. I remember being dragged to the funeral of a nanny when I was younger. I suppose I should have said my nanny, but they never felt mine. And she had lived such a useless, loser life that the only thing anyone could say about her, other than the platitude that she loved children, when all she really loved was a paycheck and daytime television, was that she put a lot of thought into the candies she chose to hand out on Halloween Oh, even at the age of seven, I think, the idea of having slightly better Halloween candy as your legacy of existence was almost infinitely depressing to me. The people who will remember her the longest are just dentists. (laughs) Maybe they will name their boats after her. The thought made me giggle, but I knew enough to bite my cheeks, draw blood, and stay silent. I guess certain losses are so profound that they can only find salvation in drama. Jane's dad gave a long speech which touched and brushed and skirted around the central issue of reputation assault and social media bullying. You know, the standard, I wish people had acted differently stuff which allowed him to tell himself that he rolled his boulders of stone words through the collective assembly of selfish people. But this man who had suffered unimaginable loss, still could not eviscerate the callow youths yawning in front of him. We held the power. He could only hint for the sake of his own conscience. But we all lived and breathed for power over the good. That was the constant tension of our endless lives. Power versus virtue. Of course, everyone wants to be good. Every movie and book is about the triumph of virtue over evil. That is a central myth of our existence, but it's all nonsense and vanity. If good people are ever allowed to gather power, they will flush us up into orbit. It's them or us. We know that because we have conquered the good within us. They don't know this battle because they have rejected the evil within them. Jane's dad. I appreciate everyone who has come here for this day. For my Jane. Voice wobbled, deep breath. She would be so touched if she could see what I see. What I see is a community that, while it has imperfections, of course, has joined together to mourn her. I'd like to thank Stacy for her beautiful song. I guarantee you that this is the last time I will ever listen to it. No offense. Jane was special. I know that all children are special to their fathers, that their parents. But I think we can all agree that there was something truly remarkable about her. She had a spirit and a passion and 
a compassion that, that lit up the world as bright as things are today. She took in all sorts of animals when she was little, all sorts of people when she was older. I have wondered if she was empathetic to a fault, but I can't find any faults with her today, before all of you. She will possess the eternal grace of never growing old, of her beauty never fading, of the optimism and enthusiasm of her youth never decaying over the decades. She will never know any more lack of concern, coldness, perhaps. She will never see the exploitation of the world, the backs of... Here we all knew that he was going to say friends and felt slight shame and great power that he refused to utter the word. He gestured at his wife, who sat with a stiff back, but her legs spread as if about to give birth. Marjorie and I have felt, feel, incredibly privileged to have known Jane for the short time she was in our lives. When any of these disasters happen, you, you do turn inwards and look for what might have changed things, what could have happened. I can't bring her back, but I can at least hope to bring some wisdom to this gathering so, so that none of you will ever have to go through what we are going through, which I doubt will ever stop. Of course we must live our lives, knowing that the next step might be a landmine of tragedy, but walking on nonetheless. Here Hamish stifled a giggle because not even bottomless parental grief can excuse terrible analogies. I dug my elbow into his side to poke out some more choked laughter. Of course we must remember that life is short, and stay close to each other, and talk and listen as deeply and wisely as we can, and make sure that secrets do not encircle each other and take us down and we must be strong in the face of here he was about to say bullying but his silence swelled a power once more adversity and then shockingly he went off script he leaned forward, gripping the podium. His bald head was so bright with sunshine that it looked like he was missing half of his skull. Did any of you get... Did she call any of you before she, she, she died? Our eyes widened and we glanced at each other, wondering if any sane teenager would break ranks. What the hell is he asking? Does he really expect anyone to admit any kind of culpability in Jane's death? Our parents were wealthy. We knew all about the possibilities of getting sued. Wild grief makes for exhausting lawsuits. She, she deleted her call history before. But I would like to have a special relationship with anyone she might have called. I don't know if we can get anything from the phone company. But, but if she tried, if she spoke with anyone, I really, really need to know what was happening in her mind, please. I know it's a weird thing to ask, but I don't know if anyone will, or if anyone, all of you, will be assembled again like this, and we don't have any other children, so we will lose track of all of you. We'll be like frozen in your brains, moving into the past with Jane. There was a pause. Everyone was shocked. Parents shot warning glances at their children. His voice deflated as he spoke. It's a lot to ask, I know, but it would really help Marjorie, me, if we knew anything about her last thoughts, Jane's last. A racking sob erupted from his chest and scattered his breaking words like a geyser. He nodded rapidly, signaled his thanks, and stepped down. Afterwards, at the reception, we all avoided him like the plague, afraid he would wrestle us into some vestibule and demand we mind-read a dead brain. And then... Unholy of unholies, Marjorie, his wife, insisted that we stand in a circle, awkward with the endless tables of finger food, and pray. I didn't know a single religious person. Religion was lower caste, something you turned to when a tornado wrecked your trailer. Our parents rolled their eyes when her demand came, and I knew in that moment that we would never see Jane's family again because they had confessed their sentimental weakness. And it didn't matter that it was sentimental. God knows we all did that from time to time. 
It only mattered that it was weakness, which was the one unforgivable sin in our lives. Have they learned nothing from Jane's death, I thought. And to ask that question was to answer it. I remembered a man named Samuel, a business associate of my father's, whose son had been killed by a gaggle of joy-riding drunk teenagers. Samuel's son was jogging along a country road. He wanted to get in shape for his upcoming wedding, and he was hit so hard by the truck that he was decapitated. Samuel stood in the room, not unlike this one, and gave a reasonable speech and shed no tears and ate heartily and chatted about weather and politics and showed his usual irritation at his bumbling eldest son. And I remember sitting, chewing on a tiny quiche and staring at Samuel, wondering how he could swallow the life of his son and not even burp. He was like an intransigent force of nature. I imagined that maybe he cried bitterly while alone, but staring at him, I thought, if you didn't know why he was here, what this reception is for, you would have no idea that he had lost a son. I imagined that if he were an actor, he would be fired on the spot. For God's sake, man, you just lost a son. Don't act like you're bored in church. Religion was weakness. It blunted your appetites and focused your ambitions and energies on the unreal. The afterlife was a consolation prize for life's losers. The meek might inherit the earth, but not its mineral rights. However, in the same way that Jane's dad could not mention our viciousness, our weeding out of the weak, Jane's mom could not mention our atheism. Well, Not even atheism, more agnosticism, because to be against something was to kind of affirm its existence or or value. She mentioned that she knew the crowd was full of those who questioned their faith, but asked God above to take Jane into his ever-loving embrace and to keep her safe and happy until she and her husband could join her again. And I remember being struck by that word, safe, because it implied that there were dangers in heaven, wolves in sheep's clothing that hunted the angels, perhaps. Oh, well, mothers are always paranoid about danger. That was the root of my political power later on. She was very good. I always gave her that. And I found a new respect for religious faith in that moment, where I had to shuffle around in order to avoid holding a boy's hand, which would be mocked forever. And that respect lasted me for the rest of my life. I almost fell in love with her vision of protection and transcendence and a loving universe and a purpose to morality and a strength in virtue. Virtue has so little power in the world, or at least in my world, that it needs an all-powerful protector or enforcer. But that was not... Marjorie's vision. Dear Lord, we thank you for the gift of Jane and accept your decision to bring her back to you. We are sorry for whatever role we played in her despair and ask you to forgive both her and us for the gift she, she was going to say, rejected or threw away, but no, lost in her sorrow. We ask that you bless the minds and hearts of everyone in this room, many of whom question their faith or do not believe. We ask that you, for some reason the word bathe came to mind, but she rejected that as well, surround them with your love and grace. There are those in this room who do not feel loved and may have never felt loved. This was a dangerous poke at our parents, but I think Marjorie had accepted her coming ostracism. And that is not their fault. That is just the fallen world we live in. And there are those among us who do not believe in evil. Please counsel them about the danger of this, the danger of losing what makes us most human, our yearning for the universal, for the eternal, for the incomprehensible and beautiful. Fill everyone's heart with all that is most yearning for good, for redemption, and yes, for forgiveness 
in part for what happened to my Jane. Everyone has free will, I know that, but we all, she was going to say touch, have an effect on each other. We are all bound together in everything that we do. And if there is a meaning to this senseless death, it must be that we vow to be good to each other, to stand up for what is right, to avoid salaciousness and gossip and that which destroys the good. When we turn to the eternal, that is our only strength to rise above the pettiness and conformity demanded by, by what surrounds us. My father's face was dark with anger. I saw him have an impulse to move towards Marjorie, but he was restrained by something. And I've never before in my life seen him stopped in such a manner. Was it respect for her grief? Was it her faith? She said, My children, you are young. You think you know everything. And I am a crazy old lady with crosses in her eyes. But I have learned something that you do not know yet. You must never compromise what you know to be right. Her voice lowered, and despite ourselves, we leaned forward to hear. We thought she was funny. We knew she was not. I know you are all scared of each other, in a way, and that's why the least among you have the most power. It starts so early. I've been thinking about Jane, how I went back to work just seven weeks after she was born. And I put her in a daycare, and she cried and cried. But I, I did what you do. I believed everyone around me. I sacrificed my girl, my motherhood, for money we didn't need and a career that doesn't matter. I can't go back. Marjorie's voice wobbled dangerously. I had all my files sent to me. I'm shredding them because I'm broken. I held a newsletter I had written. And I remembered staying late and missing half her birthday party when she was five. And when I came, she couldn't stop crying. And everything was ruined. And now this newsletter I sacrificed her for is going into the shredder. And she is going into the... We all flinched at the unspoken word, ground. And you will be tempted by that as well to give up your natural bonds for cash that just evaporates. I gave up my daughter for a career, and now I have neither. I'm just someone on a cross for you to learn from. Why was she so susceptible to what you said? Because we lacked a bond. She bonded with you because she had to bond with the children in her daycare. Her face grew luminous with wonder at her sudden thought. And that is too much power for you to have you all bonded with each other rather than with your parents, if that is the case. I, I don't want to presume. She briefly genuflected before the altar of offense before plunging on. It really is about love like all the songs and the poems and the sentimentality and the greeting cards say. Jane died for lack of love. It's true, she cried at her pale husband. You're busy, I'm busy. We have money and business cards and status and everything except our daughter. And even if she had lived, she would have been gone from us. Come on, how often do you talk to your parents? You did the same thing. They did the same thing. Daycare and peer pressure and emptiness and ambition. We are going about it all wrong, and I don't know why. I don't know who benefits. Her eyes widened slightly. Well, of course, you benefit from power over each other. But it's not real. And then she could have had a real moment of power and detonated our entire social structure. But instead she turned her eyes away from us to the ceiling, and launched herself into irrelevance by pleading with God once more. I don't even remember what she said. I recall feeling great relief and some vague 
grief at a fundamental missed opportunity. Jane's funeral was an exercise in power. The petty evils we had all done remained unspoken. Sentimentality and self-pity and the preening of self-conscious grief ruled the day. Nature blazed the scene in blinding sunlight. Everything continued. The planet rolled through nothing, like words through our minds, and we settled deeply into the grooves of our future, where good people only had to satisfy their own scant conscience, not virtue itself. And I wonder now, as I have not done for years, though I suppose it has been a deep-seated thought of mine for decades, just why Jane's dad said nothing, while Jane's mother almost said everything. Knowing that the world has somehow silenced the virtuous gave me all the certainty I needed to become president.